Bad in the boondocks Bad in the boondocks People put down But what you're supposed to do In a small town Bad in the boondocks Bad in the boondocks Lord have mercy Can't be Bad in the boondocks Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am Stanley. And I'm Drew. And we're here on a not-so-bright Wednesday. Yeah. Hump day. It's been a long day. Tucker, the dog, had to get some shots today, and he's very ill. They didn't do the shots very good. Um, so it's just been a long day. But we're here, and we're happy as can be. Yay. Remember <laughs> to rate, review, subscribe. Get in touch with us. Email us. Shoot us an email. Bad in the boondocks at att.net. Visit our website, www.badintheboondocks.net. And go to face, go to Facebook and yeah. search for Bad in the Boondocks. Yep. And make sure to get your tickets to go to the True Crime Festival on July 13th. It's in Chicago. Yep. On Miracle Mile downtown yeah. at the Marriott. Mm-hmm. All, right. all right. I think that's all of the boring business. So you want to start us out today? Yep, I'll go first. All right. Um, His name was Robert Joseph Long. That was his real name, but I think he went by Bobby Joe Long. Bobby Joe. Yeah. He was born on October 14th, 1953 in Canova, West Virginia. Long spent most of his childhood with his mother in Florida because his father, Joe, and mother, Luella, I think that's how you pronounce it, split when Long was just a young boy. Long, Long's early life was troubling. He got in a few accidents and was injured, and he failed the first grade. His mom worked in a bar and oftentimes brought many men home with her. This caused Long to develop a hatred for women starting with his mother. It was even worse because he shared a bed with her until 13 years old. Long met Cynthia, which will be his future wife at the age of 13. They married in 1974 and had two children. Not long after, he was hit by a car and got seriously injured. After the accident, he became short-tempered and violent. He also developed a strange sex obsession and and labeled a sex sadist. Long had a female friend named Sharon Richards, and when Cynthia filed for a divorce in 1980, he moved in with her. She would later accuse him of rape and battery. In 1983, Long was charged for sending letters about sex and inappropriate photos to a 12-year-old girl. And how old was he? He he was a grown man by this time. When was he born? He was born in nineteen fifty three, so he was like twenty eight, almost thirty. Yeah, almost thirty. I think he might have been or thirty. No, yeah. yeah, he was exactly thirty. Um, he got a short jail sentence and was out on probation. He also, around this time, committed more than 50 rapes. Wow. 
Yep, by looking for houses that were for sale and then going on ads about the furniture in the homes. And then that um, would give him a reason to enter the women's houses. Um, in spring of 1984, he committed his first murder. At first, it was just to control his sexual needs, but yeah, it began not being enough for him and killing again to excite him. In March 1984, he raped and assaulted a woman, and she was a prostitute by the name of Artis Wick. But this wasn't enough, so he strangled and killed her. Later, when Long was driving on a Nebraska Avenue in Tampa, Florida, in May of 1984, he saw a woman walking along the side of the road by the name of Lana Long, but no relation to him. Bobby Long stopped and offered her a ride, and she accepted. A little ways down the road, he stopped again off of the side of the road and pulled out a knife. She began to scream, so he took her to a more secluded road where he tied her up, raped, and strangled her. He then disposed of the body, leaving her on the side of the remote road. Like garbage. Yep. Police found her days later face down and bound with her arms behind her back and her legs spread wide open. And I think it actually says from heel to heel, it was five feet apart. Yeah, I do. I think I have. I think I've heard of this one. It's a pretty good one. Because <laughs> he would go to do furniture. Yeah. And he would think that there wouldn't be men home because they'd be working during the daytime. And if there was a man home. Well, that was his rapes that he did that. Right. To, not and then murders. if a man was home, then he would just say that he didn't want to buy the furniture. Yep. That's how it went. Long's pleasure, pleasures were not satisfied and he killed again. This time, a woman named Michelle, Mitchell, Michelle Sims, age 22, and she was also a prostitute. Long beat and raped her after luring her to his car and after he was well after he was through he slashed her throat not just one time but several times mm. yeah the same red nylon fiber was found on both of these these victims making police think the murders were connected so have all of these murders been prostitutes you i'll get to that okay not long after long's fourth victim was found 17 days after she was killed. Her name was Elizabeth Loudenbach. Her Last body, night. yeah. <laughs> Her body was badly decomposed, but this victim was much different than all the other victims. She was found fully clothed, lying on her back, and she was not a prostitute or drug user like the other women. Long then switches back to a prostitute named Chanel Williams. She was on a Tampa street walking when Long picked her up. The victim was also different because after the after raping her, he shot her in the side of the neck instead of like his other victims and strangling them. Yeah, or slitting the throat. Yeah. Two more bodies were found by police. I wonder why he started with a gun. I don't all of a sudden. I don't know. Well, is that only I mean, one it could have been. It could have been because she was trying to fight back. I yeah, would but there assume. was another one that tried to fight back, and he just went to a remote, more yeah. secluded road. Well, their names were Karen 
this friend and Kimberly Hobbs. Hops. <laughs> That's with two Ps. Okay. After after this, Long went on to even more killings. He shot, he spotted 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh riding her bike in north of Tampa. This victim was as well different from the other victims because he didn't kill her and he let her go. Well, that's going to do him in. Yep. He took her back to his apartment where he raped her and then showered with her. He treated her like a sex slave and then he let her go. Of course, after she went straight to the police, I wonder which if allowed this, police. If it, if it was because she was so young and did he have any children? I was thinking that, yes, he had two children. Right. And I wonder I if think he was, was kind of thinking she was so had, young. Right. And, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And, I mean, a little late for that, but. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and from what I remember, that girl had been raped before. I think Are so. Are you going to get into that? I think she, I don't. And she was a very smart one, too. What I remember, she went and played into, never mind. she went into the bathroom to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And she put her fingerprints everywhere in the bathroom. That's really smart. Yeah. I mean, she just stuck her hands everywhere. So they would be on the counter, the walls, the everywhere. Dang. And then, um, but yeah, she also played into it with him saying, you know, yeah, I'll take care thinking. of you because she from being raped. That's always the, the key to right. whenever you're being kidnapped, you have to play into their urges right. or else you're, you're going to get. And shot. she realized, Hey, he's been, he's hurt by when he hates women. So I'm going to say, and I think she told him even, you know, Hey, I'll take care of you. We won't tell anybody, you know, my age and everything. Yeah, and, and that's let her go. Let her go. Mm-hmm. But it's awful. Seventeen and had already been raped for yeah, once. Yeah. Um, her going to the police allowed police to catch Long, but police were a little short. However, and Long was able to kill two more women, um, named Virginia Johnson and Kim Swan. But finally, on November sixteenth of nineteen eighty four, Long was arrested in a movie theater. Police found that the red fibers found on the victims matched the fibers in his car. Even after he was in custody, they found another victim of his going by the name of Vicki Elliott. Artis Wicks, which was Long's first victim, was finally found after Long was arrested, so she wasn't even found until he was arrested. In April of 1985, Long was sentenced to death after being found guilty of Virginia Johnson's murder. He also pleaded guilty to eight other murders in the Hillsborough County area. Long confessed to ten murders and received two dozen life sentences. Wow. Yep, and received another death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims in the summer of 1986. He is now in the Florida's Union Correctional Institution serving his time and is on death row for two murders but it kept getting delayed because of his several appeals. Of course. Yep. So appeal it until you die of natural causes. Yep. Well, that was interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's all I've got for me. You got one? I got one. All right. Well, today I've got, um, 
my wonderful killer is Sean Vincent Gillis. I think I've heard of him actually. Not quite sure what he did, but he killed. I've just heard. <laughs> no, I wouldn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, his method of operation it varied. It varied about as much as his victims did. Mm-hmm. And as we'll get into, he's he goes from twenty to eighty-two years old. Dang, that's very yeah, wide. Very it? wide. While he nearly always mutilated his victims' bodies and frequently took body parts as trophies, sometimes he chose to strangle his victims and sometimes he stabbed them. He defied typical FBI serial killer profiles by crossing defined boundaries regarding age and race and his lengthy cooling-off periods between kills, particularly at first. It challenged what FBI profilers had become accustomed to seeing in such killers, and it significantly contributed to his remaining free for so long. His victims, they ranged from 29 years old to 82 years old. Yeah. Some of his victims were white, some were black, but most all of them were from poor sides of town. But at least one lived in a very rich neighborhood. Linked to several of his victims by DNA evidence, Gillis also confessed to a total of eight murders. In addition, in addition <laughs> to the DNA evidence, Gillis was also tied to one of his victims by unique tire tracks that were left at the site where one victim was found. Gillis had a long criminal history and it dated back to 1980 and he was charged with criminal trespassing. But his pre-murder rap sheet contained mostly minor legal infractions that stemmed from traffic citations, a DUI. He had a possession of marijuana charge on there, a contempt of court charge, but nothing real serious. But it was a lot of it. Yeah. Police believe that they, he didn't commit his first murder until March 21st of 1994 when he broke into a small retirement home apartment of 82-year-old Ann Bryan during the early morning hours. Although his intention had been simply to rape the elderly white woman, wow. she began screaming and would not stop until he cut her throat with the foot-long hunting knife he carried with him. Good As Lord. she lay bleeding to death, Gillis allegedly stabbed her repeatedly and slashed her body with the knife. And Brian's murder remained unsolved for 10 years. Nearly five years would pass before Gillis killed again. He told a reporter after his arrest that he waited so long before killing his next victim because he was happy. During that lengthy period, he worked at a convenience store located across the street from Ann Brian's home. Anne lived in a small ranch-style house on Bergen Avenue, in a quiet middle-class neighborhood about a mile from the scene of his first murder. That's pretty kind of weird to live and work that exactly, close. Exactly, that close. And, and that might didn't... also contribute to why he didn't do it, because every day he could look and see where he killed that person. It kind of kept his They didn't like think the question him about it? It was 10 years before that he was... I mean, like, even the first murder, you think him living that close? Well, stabbing and all that, he would have been covered in blood. Like leaving the scene. Yeah, like how? 
I don't get how he. I don't get how a lot of people left. Yeah. Because this was in the 90s. Yeah. So they had DNA and stuff. They had stuff. Even though it was kind of just beginning, kind of. But still. Anyway, the house belonged to Gillis' mother, where the two of them lived from the time that Gillis was a teenager. His mother, however, eventually moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and left the house with her son, who, by the time of Ann Bryant's murder, shared it with his girlfriend. His neighbors did not like him. In fact, many of his neighbor neighbors were afraid of him, particularly girls and women. Some considered him strange, to say the least. One neighbor said that Gillis gave him the willies. What? <laughs> <laughs> gave him the willies. Just like butterflies and some. Not butterflies. They not lovey dovey, but willies just made the skin crawl. Oh, okay. Yeah, creep. He was once caught peeping into the bedroom window of a neighbor's house, and he had also been seen on a number of occasions lying out on his front lawn, barking at the moon, in between (laughs) cursing at his mother. Well, if that's his hobby, that's his hobby. Most people naturally avoid him whenever possible. Now, Gillis' next victim was 30-year-old Catherine Hall a black drug addict who was, who resided in a housing project on North Street, long known for its drug dealers, pimps, and prostitutes. When Catherine climbed into Gillis's car on a chilly night in early January of 1999, he overpowered her, placed a plastic cable tie around her neck, and choked her, after which he then stabbed her in the throat and in her left eye. Ooh. After committing the violent carnage against the young woman, Gillis raped her and then further mutilated her body. I think that would be the oh, painful. worst. And like if you, I mean, because you think just it, someone stabbing you in your eye with something or oh, both of them, because it's hard enough to put eye drops in your eye. I mean, <laughs> without that would blinking. Be awful. A squirrel hunter found her nude body lying face down on a road in rural area of East Baton Rouge Parish in front of Dead End Road sign. Investigators later theorized that Gillis's choice of dumping the woman's body in front of the Dead End yeah, sign that's not creepy at all. Right, might have been symbolic. Some four months later, toward the earlier part of May in 1999, Gillis, while trolling for a new victim, saw Hardy Schmidt, 52-year-old mother of three out for an early morning jog in a well-heeled neighborhood of South Baton Rouge. That's kind of a ritzy place. Yeah. Schmidt was an ardent runner who had previously taken part in the Boston Marathon, and Gillis sized her up that morning as an easy target. He returned to her neighborhood frequently for the next three weeks, hoping to encounter her again. It was not until Sunday, May 30th, at approximately... 6.30 a.m. that Gillis was able to seize his opportunity. He ran her down with his car and knocked the stunned, if not seriously injured, woman into a ditch. While she was dazed and confused, like the movie, (laughs) he got out of his car, placed a heavy-duty cable around Schmidt's neck, and began choking her. With Schmidt 
completely under his control, he shoved her into his car and took her to a nearby park where he raped and murdered her. After after mutilating her body with a knife, he loaded her into the trunk of his car, where her nude body remained overnight, and he drove home. The following day, he drove her to St. James Parish, about 35 miles from Baton Rouge, and on one of the routes to New Orleans, where he dumped her body into a bayou next to the highway. A bicyclist found the body the next day. So you can't never put bodies right beside the road. I mean, I mean you why know would you put them right beside the road? Or I mean, they always drive away, you know, like 35 miles away or something. Exactly. But, but I now, know, I but mean, like, there's traffic cameras everywhere. I mean, for real, like, I mean, we barely even have any woods to put a body. <laughs> we, I mean, all of our nothing, trees okay? are, are all, being all cut are down. <laughs> so we ain't got, we don't have nowhere to hide. <laughs> I was going to say something. But, but you forgot. No, I was going to say because they would be like cut down the trees and then they'd have another stump. What? You know, like if you had mutilated the body. But that's and horrible. then they'd have another stump, you know, because the tree stumps and then you'd have a leg stump. Oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Additional Gillis victims. Okay. We have Joyce Williams. Okay. She was 36, and she was killed on November the 12th of 1999. Gillis severed one of her legs. We have Lillian Robinson. She was 52, and she was killed on January 2000, and an angler found her naked body a month later. Marilyn Nevels was 38. She was killed in late October of 2000. Gillis dumped her body three miles from his house, next to the Mississippi River in Baton Rouge. Someone discovered her decomposing body on Halloween. That See, would be I mean, one crapping of the Halloween. I know it would. I mean, like, and another thing would be that would be terrible is like one of your limbs or your hand or your fingers or your feet or your toes being cut off. Yeah, I feel like anything being cut off. That would up. be pretty bad. I mean, I'd rather a finger than my whole hand, though. I'd rather nothing, really. Really Preferably nothing. this one, because I can't even work this one, but <laughs> stupid triple pinky. <laughs> After Gillis had murdered his sixth victim, he took a significant break from killing. He took more than a year off. But he additionally raped, strangled, and stabbed female victims, began turning up in Baton Rouge again. See, they keep doing this and doing it and doing it. Well, yeah, they don't get called. And they don't get called. And if they would have stopped at the first or second or even third victim. They wouldn't get caught, but they can't stop. They would have gotten away with it. It's it's an urge. It's just like if you see something that if you that you just have to do like if you I mean some people I mean there's just if they see a certain type of food they just have to eat it or chocolate you know they just have to eat a piece of that chocolate yeah that's just the same thing with them yeah. or a cigarette some people have to have that cigarette well know? yeah but then they they go like a and if year or five years without murdering yeah. another victim some do but I mean his first one he waited a good little he waited like five years but then it was. All the 1999, 1999, 2000, 2000. But well, then he waited this, a year. All of Bobby Joe Long's victims was in the same year. Yeah. And I think that a 
few might have been in um the next year or the um just like two of them were in the next year or but if we had Deputy Drew up on that case, they would be found after the first time. Yeah, sure would be. I'd get them. About as good as Barney Fife. Who is that? Go look it up. Barney. Oh, you're talking about Barney. Barney Fife. I swear, he solved like nothing. I thought Andy Griffith. You're too young. You need oh, to go I know what it. you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, there was another Barney, I think, and he solved, like, like thousands of cases, but he's also, like, 80, I think. But it, I don't know if his name is Barney or not, but it sounds very similar. Uh, I know Joe. No, he's on, like, the, he's on the... Yeah, that's Joe. He's on the... It's um, not Barney. What do you call it? The... Crime shows and crap. His name was Lieutenant Joe. Lieutenant Joe. Right, not Barney. Yeah, well, I'll be like Lieutenant Joe. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Man, I mean, throughout his whole life, he solved like thousands of murders. All right, Deputy All right, Barney. you can keep on. <laughs> After Gillis, oh, I already read that. Okay. Get your thoughts straight, <sighs> sir. Sorry. Okay. Trouble was, all the these female victims that had started turning up again, yeah. they weren't Gillis's victims. So he soon realized so that he like- had a competitor in town. Oh, wow. Someone other than Gillis had murdered Gina Wilson Green in September of 2001, and the following May, Charlotte Murray Pace was stabbed to death inside her home located near Louisiana State University. Man, that's awful, too. Two serial killers going head to head, and they right. know that they are, and they're competing like it's a competition. Two months later, Pam Keenamore was kidnapped from her home, and her body was found four days later floating in Whiskey Bay. By August of 2000, she drunk. She was dead already. Oh well, I was just saying because she was in Whiskey, Whiskey Bay. Whiskey Bay, I got was- it. <laughs> <laughs> By August 2002, you're tried. The Baton Rouge Police Department acknowledged that they had a serious problem on their hands and that they needed to do something about it. Well, I think you do. Well, yeah. As a result, they formed a task force. But the focus of their efforts appeared to be greater with regard to solving the murders of the second serial killer at work and not on solving Gillis's Oh, crimes. man, so that must have made him jealous. The police would later learn that Gillis then began spending the greater part of his days on the Internet, keeping track of the work of his competitor. Although he did not know it yet, his challenger was a black man, 34-year-old ex-convict, Derek Todd Lee. Before he was identified and apprehended, Lee would also take the lives of Trenisha De- <laughs> Dean Colum and Carrie Lynn Yoder. DNA left at the scene of Colum's murder positively linked her slaying with the murders of Green, Pace, and Kenimore. Like Gillis, Lee also crossed the predefined profiling boundaries regarding race defying theories that serial killers rarely kill victims who are not of their own race. Those are some big words that you just used. (laughs) What are they? It's hard to keep up. (laughs) 
police began to wonder about the odds. How likely would it be for something like this to occur twice in the same location? Also at the same exact period. So then it was making them think there's another killer. Right. Okay. Following Lee's arrest in May of 2003, the police and the press began referring to him as the Baton Rouge serial killer. And this, of course, immediately grabbed Gillis's attention. He crafted a file on his computer's hard drive and named it DTL, Lee's initials. Oh, oh, our original. (laughs) And began collecting news articles and photos about Lee's case so that he could more carefully follow that investigation. It would later be pointed out that he was not about to be outdone by Lee. It was not until October of 2003, however, when Gillis would begin killing again. His path crossed that of 45-year-old Johnny May Williams, a divorced mother of three children, a drug addict, and a prostitute. With Williams's murder, Gillis again defied FBI profiles of serial killer traits, that one being that a serial killer rarely kills anyone that he knows. In this case, Gillis and Williams had been friends and had known each other for at least 10 years. Nonetheless, Gills drove her to a secluded area where he beat, raped, strangled her, and then he mutilated her body with a knife. God, all of everybody is raped. This time around, however, he also posed his victim in various positions and photographed her. Oh my gosh, wait. You're doing the guy that I had just read about, though. I just wasn't getting the hint. Like, <laughs> I knew that there was a guy, like, I had just read and I wanted to do him that positioned the bodies or something and photographed and stuff, but I didn't do it. I chose this one. Gillis murdered his eighth and final victim in February of 2004. It was then that he picked up 43-year-old Donna Bennett Johnston, also a prostitute. She was drunk when he picked her up, so it was not difficult to get her into his car. After he drove her to a location near his home, he looped a cable around her neck and strangled her. See, they should be able to put all this because he uses a cable every time. He uses a cable every time. According to his later account of the murder, it was a quick death. It took about one and a half minutes for her to fall into unconsciousness. I mean, that's not a real short death if you're the person being Uh, strangled. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's very long. But it took her a little longer than that for her to stop breathing. Well, I mean, once you're passed out. Right, then it's... You don't know anything, but... He took off all of Johnston's clothes and placed her body on the ground where he slashed both of her breasts and cut off her left nipple. Oh, my gosh. He also cut a tattoo from her right thigh and removed her left arm at the elbow. Did he keep it as a souvenir? He reportedly took the arm with him and later used the hand that was attached to it to masturbate. Oh, I know that. Oh, my gosh. That's something. Well, it had Can't my, you use just your grip. own hand? Well, I mean, I guess it's... He's got some weird sexual fantasies then. Well, he made that fantasy a reality. Yeah. But, like, I'm surprised he didn't, like, take the tattoo and then tried to sew it on himself. You know? 
that, that would be real screwed. That would have been pretty <laughs> real screwed looking up. Yeah. <laughs> Johnston's murder was without a doubt the most gruesome of guilts. Your friend died quickly, he wrote to Johnston's friend. After his arrest, she was so far gone that night that I really do not think she even knew what was happening to her. She was so drunk, it only took about a minute and a half to succumb to unconsciousness and then death. Honestly, her last words were, I can't breathe. The friend that he wrote that letter to died of complications from AIDS in August of 2005, but not before she turned over those letters to the authorities. Well, good thing she turned them over. Less than two months later, in April 2004, investigators matched a unique tire track found at the location where Gillis had dumped Johnston's body to Gillis's white Chevrolet Cavalier. After the police arrested him at his home with the aid of a SWAT team, detectives promptly matched a DNA profile from a swab taken from Gillis to evidence recovered from several of his victims. Upon executing a search warrant at his house, detectives seized seven saws, a hacksaw, several knives, a machete, plastic zip ties, external hard drives, four computers, a computer scanner, photographs of Johnny May Williams' dead body, a 14-inch bayonet, a wooden club, six Playboy Pocket Playmate books, and newspaper clippings about Derek Lee's final victim, Carrie Lynn Yoder. Sure, that's not odd at all, having all that stuff in your home. I love how he had six Playboy Pocket books. Like pocket. <laughs> yeah, you can fit them in your pocket. Yeah, that's very convenient. <laughs> Um, one of his computers also contained files named Best of Snuff, Beheadings and Hangings, and Manson Murders. The subject of another file was about Russian necrophilia. Several books, both fiction and nonfiction, about serial killers were also seized from his home. Gillis, in his earlier letters, to the friend said that he did not really understand why he, why he sexually mutilated his victims and said that he really didn't know, quote, what the hell is wrong with me? I was in a real bad place. I was pure evil that night. No love, no compassion, no faith, no mercy, no hope, unquote. He blamed his actions on his lack of faith and the fact that he had hated God for a long time. Sean Vincent Gillis had confessed to killing and mutilating eight women, seven of whom he had been officially charged with murdering. He is now serving four life sentences. No possibilities of parole. What did... They didn't try him for all of them. Wait a second. Where was this at? Louisiana. Do they not have the death penalty or something? I think they do. Yeah, they do. Well, then why didn't they? I don't know. I guess, uh, well, maybe because it was harder to get them tried for the death penalty. Well, one of the victim's sisters said that the death penalty would be too kind. Form. You really? know, it would be not mercy. It wouldn't, you well, know, because yeah, he, everybody else suffered. You don't suffer. suffer. No, you don't. 
So, but like some of them um, are able to break out and go kill again. Yeah, that's true. But then most of them that are just, on, most of them that are on death row get a cell to their cell for years until they die of natural causes. Also, I mean that's true. But even the guy that he was competing with, he was an ex-convict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they usually are most of them. Yeah. Was that all you got? That's all I got for today. So okay, that thank you for joining good. us as always. I was Stanley. Yep, and I'm Drew, and we'll see you next time. See you.